0: Hello, and welcome to another episode. I am Dr. E, the Stem Cell Guy. You are on the Highway to Health, and I'm your guide to help you get there. Can you believe that our little podcast has reached its first milestone? This is episode 10 of the Highway to Health Show, and to celebrate, we've got a phenomenal guest lined up for you. Her name is Dr. Jamie Seaman. Dr. Seaman is a board-certified OBGYN who practices in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, what's really interesting about her is that she's one of those doctors that really walks the walk, meaning that she does not recommend anything to her patients if she has not done it before, whether it's diet or exercise or whatever it is, the recommendation that she's about to give to her patients. She makes sure that she's done before, she's followed through, and it's worked for her. Not a lot of us can say that about our practice. In this episode, Dr. Seaman shares how she bounced back towards health, fitness, and well-being after her third pregnancy. So if that sounded even a little bit familiar to you, you do not want to miss this episode. And in our last episode, episode 9, we featured Pradeepa Narayana Swami. Pradeepa is a fertility coach helping couples navigate the emotional roller coaster of our fertility treatments. If you or someone you know is struggling with fertility, this is the episode for you. I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Now, if you enjoy the show, it would mean the world to me if you could take a moment of your time and leave us a rating on iTunes. All you need to do is go to iTunes, search for the Highway to Health Show, and and click on the appropriate star that's all you really need to do if you're feeling particularly generous you can also write a review we appreciate everyone who's already done it and now without further ado here's my conversation with dr jamie seaman
1: are you ready to live ageless want to discover alternative health choices cutting edge nutrition and fitness for the entire family Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the Stem Cell Guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Highway to Health Show. I'm your host, Dr. E, the Stem Cell Guy. Our guest today is not only a full-time mom and wife, but also a practicing physician who still makes time to optimize her health by eating right and working out. And boy, do I mean working out. It's no wonder that she's known as Dr. Fit and Fabulous. If you still don't know who I'm talking about, get ready to meet her. Dr. Jamie Seaman is a board-certified OVGYN and a fellow in integrative medicine. She has a background in nutrition, exercise, and health sciences. But despite what we see today, this was not always the case. As a former college athlete, she used to get away with poor nutrition until, you guessed it, pregnancy. Weight gain and fatigue became a constant battle, which prompted her to seek answers and change her life. Today, she devotes part of her professional practice to educating her patients about low carbon nutrition and lifestyle changes. Hi, I'm super excited to have her on the show to share her tips with all of you. Dr. Seaman, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. So happy to be here.
0: Oh, not a problem. Thank you for taking our invitation. I am very, very excited, as I was sharing with you earlier, I'm very excited for the information and the tips that you'll be able to share with our listeners, because most of the time, people who want to Change And most of the people who listen to us, they're busy moms and dads, and they are already overwhelmed by the day-to-day of being a mom, a full-time parent, a full-time spouse. And it's really difficult to take care of themselves. So whenever I find someone who's still managing to do all these things while keeping a full-time professional practice and all those things, I am super excited to be able to share these things.
2: Hopefully we can help somebody today. That's always been my goal.
0: Good, good. Well, once again, thank you so much for being here. Now, before we get started, from the information that you and I have shared, looking over through some of the information that you have online as well, you were not always this fit and fabulous. Is that right?
2: This is true. I like to tell people I'm just as human as my patients are. And I am just like a lot of the moms I take care of. I got away with eating poorly growing up as a child because I was an athlete and I know why people are confused about nutrition because I myself have a background in nutrition and a medical degree and I was still struggling with what to eat and how to feed my family and ordering shakes off Facebook and all these desperate things and these easy answers that we all, we just like pray, right? That there's just this simple, simple, easy thing. And it was just this like awakening after my third pregnancy. I was diagnosed with pre-diabetes. And I was exercising at the time. I thought I was eating pretty well. And that was a big eye opener. I looked at my family history. My dad and his parents all suffered from diabetes. And I just said, okay, this has to stop. And I can't ever ask my patients to be doing things that I'm not willing to do myself. And so I just felt like I needed to walk the walk and talk the talk in a sense. And so I really said, I'm going to fix this at a personal level before I try to help fix everyone else. And so that's kind of where it all started about two and a half years ago.
0: So two and a half years ago, I thought it was longer than
2: that. My youngest is about to turn four. And it was shortly after her birth that I decided that I was going to fix all of this. But that first year was a lot of experimentation, Whole30 diet, doing some paleo, changing my workouts but I never really found my stride with my nutrition or my workouts. And maybe it's because I had a newborn two-year-old and four-year-old at the time. That certainly played a part in it, but it was about two and a half years ago that I went completely ketogenic, low carb, and started changing the way that I exercise. And I am now at a point in my life where I don't want to say it comes easy, but it's been something that has been sustainable. And I've been able to maintain really what I would call not much effort, you know, for all the things I've tried in my life. And my family has really embraced it. My husband eats the same way that I do. or really changing the way that our kids nutrition is viewed in our household. And it's just made such a significant impact on our life that we can't not share it with others.
0: Of course. Now, speaking about your husband, and this is a very important topic I've seen from talking to some of my patients and talking to different families, I used to work a lot with special needs families. So a lot of the times they had this one specific diet for the child, let's say with autism, and the rest of the family would follow something completely different because they simply did not want to do it this way, or they didn't want to eat X or Y. How important do you think it is that you were able to get your husband on board and get the entire family on board? Was this a factor at all?
2: I think it really was. You know, my husband is very willing to try anything, and honestly, this was probably the best suggestion I ever made to him. We eat predominantly carnivore now, and I think for men, that's a really easy concept. Like, just eat meat and eggs, and don't eat this other stuff. It was very simple for him to just view it that way. Now, I will admit, when we started low carb ketogenic, you know, I don't believe that young children need a you know strict ketogenic diet, so I never really started to clean up their diet. So there was nights where my husband and I are eating like salmon and Brussels sprouts and my kids were eating mac and cheese. And I'm sitting there like, this doesn't go together. Like we can't do this. So we definitely had to fix ourselves first. And then once we felt like we were in a good place, then we really started to focus on our kids' nutrition. And my hope and prayer is that, you know, I've had to figure this out when I was in my thirties and they're young. My girls are just about to turn four, six, and eight. And I hope that they understand how their bodies are fueled. And I mean, they don't need to wait until they're adults to figure that out.
0: Exactly. I think that is so important. I've talked about that previously here on the podcast. My wife and I, we have a one and a half year old toddler at the time, and we focus a lot on what he eats. And people think that Sometimes when we go to family gatherings or something like that, and they're giving out ice cream to the kids and we're like, no, no, don't give him any ice cream." they're like, "Oh, it's just a little treat he's like he's never had it, so we're okay with that. He's not missing it yet, and once he's old enough to understand the effect that it has in his body right now he will eat it and he'll be fine. he won't even recognize that it's having a detrimental effect, but if he's never had it, let's say at three or four or five, and he tries it then he'll probably feel the difference. So that's what we want. We want him to be able to grow up understanding and relating what he's eating with the effect it has in his body. Because I think that a lot of us, we didn't grow up that way.
2: A hundred percent. And I think it's a good point you bring up is when you're talking to your children about it, we don't say things like, you can't have that. We say things like, I don't choose to eat that because this is how it makes me feel, or this is what it does to my body. And you really have to empower them to make those decisions. I totally understand they're going to go to school, they're going to leave the house one day, and they have to make these decisions. And so, you know, I don't want them to feel like we've restricted them in their ability to make those choices. We're really just trying to empower them to make the right choices.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I think it is so important. And the truth is, we can educate them and empower them at a very young age. We don't necessarily need them to be 14, 18 to understand these things. Kids very young, two, three years old. They understand. I mean, our son gets it when it's something that doesn't suit well with him. He's allergic to, let's say, eggplants, and he'll start scratching and things. And when he sees it in his plate, he'll push it off. He's like, no, that doesn't feel right. So we can empower them at a very young age.
2: My oldest daughter can read nutrition labels.
0: (laughs) That's great. How old is she? Eight?
2: She'll be turning eight in August, but she literally will flip things over and she's like, let's see how much sugar is in here. You know, I taught her this is the one thing you have to look at.
0: Well, sugar is a tremendous problem. And I've seen a lot of the times that you post this, even you sneak those photos in the doctor's lounges and all those places, because even us as health professionals, I remember the exact same thing when I was going through my internship, when I was going through different rotations and people wanted to play nice with the doctors and they would bring donuts and they would bring sodas and you were on call and that was your fuel for the night. How counterproductive is that?
2: Oh it's just insane. I mean literally I have attended lectures, the diabetic lecture and they're serving donuts in the back of the room or you know a drug rep that represents a weight loss company is bringing in pizza for lunch. I mean it's <laughs> I mean it's just unbelievable what we expect of America and we're not living in our own words. It's just it's crazy. And you know I get a hard rap sometimes at the office Refusing things or saying, sorry, that I'm not going to have that. It doesn't serve me. But we have to start cracking down on a basic level like that. Clean up your home, clean up your office. I always tell people, like, your home should be your safe zone. You shouldn't feel trapped in your house because there's Oreos in the pantry. Just get that stuff out of there. And I've really started to have that mentality at my office. I'm like, listen, guys, we don't bring it in here. You don't bring it in here. It doesn't tempt people. It's not, you know, what we need to be showing our patients. I mean, they see those things too. And so we just need to set a better example.
0: Yeah. Especially when you work in healthcare, i I always found it incredible when I was running the clinic and I would tell them, like, listen, guys, we really cannot be having this foods here. Even if you enjoy them, even if you want to have them, this is not really the example that we need to be setting before our patients. How can you walk in and tell your patient that they need to eat right? And you literally just had a bag of crisps. It simply doesn't work that way.
2: And the candy at the front desk, I'm like, oh, man.
0: (laughs) But people do those things thinking that they're just being nice. Like, oh, I just want to make it a welcoming space and give lollipops to the children and do these things. And like I said, the clinic that I was running in Cancun, we used to treat a lot of special needs children. So mostly children with autism and these kids parents are like super adamant about sweets and candy. And, and we learned that lesson very soon, especially the people at the front desk who aren't really into healthcare. They were, you know, hospitality, things like that. And they find themselves in a doctor's office and they want to do something nice. And then it is the parents of the patients were telling them, listen, you guys, you probably shouldn't be having these things. But that's because those were very well educated parents. Most of the time, patients aren't that well educated. And I think it's our job to do that.
2: Yeah, it's amazing sometimes what people don't know and understand about their own bodies.
0: Exactly. Well, it happens to, us. you said at the beginning, with a background in nutrition, with a medical degree, I had the exact same thing. I knew nothing about nutrition the day I got my medical degree. I've only learned that afterwards. And- for me, it is shocking that this is still the way that medicine is being taught, and I hope it changes very soon. That's why I'm very happy to see so much integrative care coming up and the functional medicine practitioners and doctors really embracing this and realizing that it's not just about what I call Band-Aid medicine of just treating symptoms with a pills, but really let's focus on the underlying.
2: It has to be the future of medicine, and we just have to start addressing prevention of chronic health i mean it's where the majority of our healthcare dollars are spent in the last years of our life on chronic diseases and if we want to fix the healthcare system in america we have to figure out a way to prevent these chronic diseases like cancer diabetes and heart disease
0: absolutely now in your professional practice as sinobi gyn how much of a role is currently nutritional lifestyle playing like when you visit a patient how much of it has now shifted to listen you need to, well, this is how you need to do this. This is how you need to move. How much has that changed in the last few years?
2: It's really shifted over the last year, mostly. Um, like I said, I really tried to figure things out in my own life before I could really move it into my clinical practice. But now, when a patient comes in with a problem or even with their annual exam, the number one thing we talk about is nutrition. Because it's very interesting, even things like anxiety, depression, things that you wouldn't relate a lot of times to the diet. When we look at their nutrition, a lot of times we can fix some of these things with lifestyle interventions, and they don't always need medication. You know, we always need to be looking at what we can do first before we start adding medications and things like this. So, nutrition is always number one as part of my treatment plan.
0: And what have you noticed? to be the response from your patients in general? Are they welcoming to that? Because I see that a lot of doctors, they're a bit hesitant about going down that route because they're like, no, no, well, patients are coming in to see me because they want a pill, they want a medicine, they want a solution for their problems. So that's also a part of it. But how welcoming or not welcoming have you noticed your patients to be in this?
2: Well, I think the initial response is always like, Uh, you know, like if a patient comes in, they know if they're overweight, it's not a secret, you know, when they step on the scale. So when we talk about obesity, it's not a surprise to them. And so bringing up their diet, is not a shock, they knew it was coming, right. But sometimes it's just planting that seed in their mind, that they have more control than they realize, and that their body has the ability to heal itself. See, I think a lot of people think that they have some genetic predisposition, they were just destined to be obese and get diabetes and hypertension because their mom had it or their dad had it. But if you can really show them that our genes, our genetics, we have the ability to turn these genes off and on by the way that we fuel our bodies, by the way we work out, by the lack of chemical exposure. If you can show them, if you can teach them those basic things, They're much more willing to try. And I do think there's more patients that are wanting to avoid medication than they admit. I mean, yes, there's patients that are like, just give me a pill and we keep working together. But I think a large proportion of patients, if they knew how to do it, they would try to do it without medication. They just don't have the right tools.
0: Now talking about knowing how to do it, do you have a way to educate patients in this manner as well? Because I've seen that a lot of doctors have always recommended, well, you've got to eat well, you've got to eat better and you've got to exercise more, but they never tell patients what exercise more means, what eating better means. Patients already think that they eat well. Rarely do you have a patient come in and say like, yeah, I only eat junk. Most of the time they say like, well, no, I take, try to make good choices. So what is your way of really educating them in this manner and helping them make this transition?
2: So kind of two things. First of all, it's part of the reason that I have really tried to be transparent on social media, because I've really tried to show people, listen, this is what I do. This is how I move my body. These are the things I eat. I try to be very transparent from that standpoint of just being an example, giving people ideas when I'm working with patients, the first thing we do is a 24-hour diet recall. We look at what the patient's actually eating, and then we look where we can make improvements. I use handouts. I've started to do a lot of classes in my community at different places where patients can come. And the problem with conventional medicine is we only have 15 minutes in the clinic. I mean, it's not enough time to really educate somebody about nutrition and exercise and all of the things that really actually matter. And so sometimes it takes additional visits if they really need help. I also have an online consulting business outside of my practice that does give patients lots of extra time, 45 minutes to an hour sometimes to really set up a meal plan, macronutrients, calorie requirements, and exercise ideas. And so i really tried to be as creative as I can in the constraints that I'm living in, but I just think it's the number one most important thing for my patients.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's great that you're already doing all those things, the handouts and all those different things, because like I said at the beginning, every patient knows that, well, what did the doctor tell you, Well, that I need to eat better, but they never really told me what eating better means. And then they go online and they start seeking answers and they find all this conflicting information and people who are trying to sell diet books and methods and all those things, they want to frame it in a complex manner so that people think that, unless I buy this book, this method, this DVD program, I won't be able to do it on my own. But in reality, it's a lot simpler than what we think, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And that's, I think, where a lot of people have actually seen success with the ketogenic diet is it's very simple. Eat less than your carb threshold. So for some patients, it's just eat less than 25 carbs per day. That's all you have to do. And when you put it on such a simple level like that, they're like, Okay, I got it. Less than 25 carbs. And then you can make tweaks as you go along. But I think that simplifying things, you're going to see more success. People are confused. There is all this fancy protocols and all these things, and it's creating more confusion for people.
0: Even as a physician, did you think that was part of your journey when you started switching towards a healthier lifestyle? You mentioned that you went through like Whole30 and you did like what was Paleo and then you did Keto and now you're almost carnivore. Did you see this as well? Even as a doctor, did you notice that it was a bit overwhelming?
2: Yeah. And that's why I said, I'm going to figure this out for myself before I can figure it out for all of you. And It kind of evolved into this very simplistic thing now. Like I said, I'm able to maintain the body fat I'm at very easily. I don't feel deprived at all. My energy is great. My biomarkers are great. But it was, it was this like evolution of pulling the weeds out and teasing out just the misinformation that's out there. And Like I said, I had a nutrition degree, but ketogenic is not well accepted amongst dietitians and nutritionists at all even in the medical community. And so I kind of felt like the black sheep for a while, really trying to figure it out. Now that I've been able to translate so much of it into clinical practice, I have never looked back now.
0: What made you actually go towards the ketogenic side when you wanted to start cleaning things up? And I asked this because a lot of physicians, myself included, when I said, you know what, I need to start taking control of my health. For some reason, we end up gravitating towards plant-based And I tell people that I'm a recovering vegan now. I did that for a couple of years and I think it did more harm than good. Although at first I felt really, really good, mostly probably from cleaning out all the junk that I was eating before that. But in your case, you went directly the other path. What made you actually consider going down that route? Was there something in particular or was it just timing and coincidence?
2: Well, when I was pregnant with my three children, I failed my glucose testing in my pregnancies. And I have a family history of diabetes. So I knew that there was some basic level of insulin resistance going on. Then I had my biomarkers checked. I found out I was pre-diabetic. And so I knew that restriction of carbs was where I needed to go. As my evolution of ketogenic into more carnivorous happened, I actually do feel much better limiting plant-based foods. Really the consumption of them for me is more out of boredom. Like, I just feel like I need a different texture, so I'm going to have a salad today. But it is where I feel best, eating mostly carnivore-based. And I always, always, always tell people, you just must be your own expert. What's right for me isn't necessarily what's right for you. There are people that have higher carb tolerances. There are people that can handle more plant-based foods. But if I have somebody that has autoimmune problems, leaky gut, and things like this, sometimes we have to really titrate the exposure to some of these, it's a concept that was very hard to wrap my mind around because what we've heard our entire life is eat your fruits and vegetables, eat your fruits and vegetables. And now I'm realizing there are people that some particular fruits and vegetables could cause more inflammation for these people. And so sometimes teasing out those little things can be difficult, but just for me personally, I feel the best. My numbers look the best on a mostly carnivore-based keto, but And it's at a genetic level, like I said, I have genes, insulin-resistant genes. I mean, that's really what's best for me.
0: Exactly. I think that's so important that you bring it up. A lot of people don't really even stop and consider all of the potential anti-nutrients that plants have. When we think of them, and Dr. Gundry does a great job of explaining this in his book, The Plant Paradox. But when we stop and we think at it, as living beings, in a way, all these different plants, They need to also ensure their survival. So as a way they produce all these toxins so that predators won't eat them, whether it's bugs, whether it is other animals or even humans, and we're consuming them. So we've become adept at kind of tolerating it, but a lot of us don't really thrive on certain vegetables. And I've certainly found that that's the case as well with me. I'm also pretty skewed towards carnivore at the time. I think it's a very easy diet. Boring, if you will say that. That I'll grant everyone who says that, oh, well, you only eat steak. Yeah, it can get a little bit boring. I don't find it boring, but I see why other people might find it that way. And it's really good that as a physician, you're open to those differences and not only open about them, but you encourage patients to really experiment with themselves and say like, well, try it out. Let's see if it works. This is not a magic bullet. It worked for me. It's worked for a couple of my patients, but it might not be the exact same formula that works for you. And if eating beans works for you, if eating a little bit of rice, eating certain lentils, eating certain things works for you, then go with it, right?
2: Right. So I always tell my patients, the only diet that will work for you is the one that you will actually do. And when we talk about people debating low carb, high carb, low fat, we're not arguing over bags of Skittles, right? (laughs) I mean, everybody agrees that those types of foods are not good for us. So if a patient wants to eat sweet potatoes and more carbs of that nature, I'm not going to argue with that. If they feel good and their biomarkers look good, then great. I'm happy for them. They can eat whatever diet they want as long as they're optimizing their health. And that's where that kind of be your own expert thing comes in.
0: Exactly. And it's very, very important to that. Now, the next tricky part and something that a lot of the people who listen to us are very interested in learning, how do they feed their kids? I feel like children are currently being targeted as lifelong consumers of these highly processed, highly sugared foods or, you know, Franken foods. How do you do this? I'm not asking you for the specific magical bullet. I just want to know your experience because like you said, in social media, you share what you do. You're not sharing the absolute best answer. You're sharing what works for you and it might work for somebody else. How do you do that with your kids, all of them preteens.
2: Okay. So because I'm an obstetrician, let's talk about back to the womb for just a second. So when a baby is in the womb in the third trimester, about 30% of the energy needs are actually from ketones. So The brain is myelinating, it's using ketones as a fuel source. So then the baby's born. Breastfed babies use ketones a lot as well because breast milk is high in MCTs. And it isn't until the baby turns six months old we start feeding them rice and oatmeal and these types of grains that the baby's almost permanently kicked out of ketosis. And then we all know what happens, just like my kids, they turn two, they start living off goldfish crackers, (laughs) mac and cheese, like all these heavily carb-based foods. And they are, it's like they're literally. Pulled into this level of like carb addiction. Now, kids can tolerate more carbs than adults. They actually go into ketosis and out very easily. But I think what I have done for my own kids is when we look at their plate, we say, okay, where's your protein? My motto for a lot of people is prioritize your protein because women tend to under-eat protein as we age and we lose that lean body mass. We need additional protein requirements for the people that work out in the gym and lift heavy. They need more protein. And so I always look at my kids and I say, where's your protein? If they ask for a snack, where's your protein? And then we look at fats and then carbs always come last. So I think it's just literally teaching your kids about what macronutrients are. Protein and fat are the two most important macronutrients and those should be on your plate somewhere. And then the rest is filled in and really focusing on whole foods. So trying a variety of fruits and vegetables and things like that and letting your kids experiment with Tastes and textures, and really trying to stay away from anything that comes in a bag or from the middle aisles of the grocery store, and really just thinking more whole food base for your children is going to help clean up their diets.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. What we used to do in order to sneak in a little bit more fats and, and skew the fat percentage with our baby, whenever we were doing these blended foods, we would sneak in some MCT oil or some ghee or something along those lines. Just to make sure, I really wanted to make sure that he was getting he was getting protein because we knew that we were doing beef or something like that, but I wanted to make sure that he was getting enough fat as well for the development of the brain and, and all those things. So that's what we used to do. And I was curious to know what you were doing. I'm sure a lot of our listeners were. Now, recently, especially, there's a lot of backlash against the keto diet, especially for women. What is your opinion on that, both as a woman who's thriving on a ketogenic diet and as an OVGYN who treats women medically for profession?
2: I think at some level, it's quite political. The backlash that's happened with low-carbon ketogenic, certainly weight loss companies are feeling the squeeze. People are doing keto on their own and seeing wild success with it. And so I think there's some people that feel threatened by low-carbon ketogenic. Now for women, one of the things I hear is, what about thyroid? With the thyroid, what we really need to understand is that dieting in general can lower your free T3, which is your active thyroid hormone. And so part of it is just teaching people about smaller calorie deficits and things like that. It's not low-carbon keto necessarily that's causing some of this, but just extreme dieting. And then when we talk about pregnancy, um, it's very interesting if you look at the pregnancy literature, it will say in there to never let a pregnant woman eat below 175 grams of carbs per day. But in this 1,300-page document about prenatal nutrition, there's literally a quote in there that says that as long as fat and protein requirements are met, there really is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. And so some of these guidelines are just so arbitrary, and it's hard to like break the mold in your mind. But what I've experienced anecdotally with patients that are doing what I would consider low or moderate carb in pregnancy is they're eating anywhere between 50 to maybe 150 carbs per day. And they're maintaining correct amounts of weight gain during pregnancy. We're not seeing gestational diabetes. We're seeing healthy babies, healthy birth weights. Pregnancy is a hard state to study because ethically we can't tell a woman that we're going to restrict something just to see what happens with her baby. But we're seeing more and more and more women coming in, with better prenatal nutrition. And I think in the long run, we're going to see less rates of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, birth weights are on the rise. I mean, there's a reason we know that excessive maternal weight gain causes larger babies and that on an epigenetic level. I mean, we could get into like all the ramifications of poor prenatal nutrition, but I don't have any problem with it. For breastfeeding women, you must maintain a certain number of calories, a certain level of hydration, and a certain level of electrolytes. Otherwise, you can get into some trouble there. But it's unfounded, some of the actual recommendations and the backlash that have come out.
0: It's a great point that you brought up as well, before I forget, because I know that you're very, very much into this as well. How important is nutrition and electrolyte balance, specifically salt consumption in a ketogenic diet? I know that you do quite a bit of it. What's your take on it? Because salt is also a very polarizing nutrient.
2: Right. So if people are truly low-carb or ketogenic, the electrolyte requirements are substantially larger, especially for sodium. So the recommended daily allowance on a standard American diet is 2,000 milligrams or less, or some people would argue maybe even 1,800 On a true low carb or ketogenic, especially if you work out and sweat in the gym, could be upwards of five to seven grams of sodium. And so when people talk about, oh, I tried low carb or ketogenic and I felt horrible, part of that is keto adaptation and fat adaption, which can take 12 weeks or longer. And part of it is that they're having electrolyte abnormalities, sodium, potassium, and magnesium. Magnesium, especially even on standard American diet, many people are depleted in magnesium. And so focusing on electrolyte supplementation, especially in the first couple of weeks of starting a low-carb lifestyle, I do think is very important.
0: How do you recommend they focus on these?
2: I have a recipe that patients can kind of make their own home electrolyte mix. It's like a home Gatorade mix. We put real salt in it. We put some potassium and we put magnesium in it. They can flavor it with a lemon or a lime because obviously it can taste a little bit salty. There's other ways we can flavor it, but just making an electrolyte mixture, consuming one to two glasses of that per day. I do tell people to liberally salt their foods and I do prefer real salt, Celtic sea salt, Himalayan pink salt, because it does contain a lot of those trace minerals. You can get potassium and magnesium if you're consuming leafy greens, avocados, and things of that nature. So sometimes it's looking at what they're actually consuming and figuring out how much they're maybe getting in their diet.
0: Perfect. Well, before we wrap this up, what would be your top two or three recommendations to somebody listening to us now? And most of our listeners are women, but we also have a lot of men, usually around in their mid to late thirties, early forties. What would be your top two or three things for them to start doing a day in order to change their lifestyle and their health? How would you recommend somebody that you really don't know optimize their health? What are the top two
2: or three things? The first one is eliminating sugar and flowers. So even if you consume grains, flours just in and of themselves, when a grain has been crushed down to have that very large surface area, it's horrible and it does horrible things to our blood sugars and it does a lot of inflammation and damage inside the body. So number one, I don't care how you eat, but limiting sugar and flour, number one, is going to be very good for your health. Number two is moving your body. Look at the daily patterns that you have. If you want to be different, you have to do something different. And just the smallest things of like taking the stairs, parking farther away at the grocery store, and actually exercise where you're out of breath and sweaty. <laughs> a lot of patients, I'm like, do you exercise? They're like, yeah, I walk around my work. I'm like, that's not exercise. So number two is just moving your body. And then number three is look at your family. What health problems are you destined for? Your family can give you a lot of information. And if there's something like Alzheimer's disease or heart disease or diabetes, what things can you do now? Because this number three is like where people can fill in the gaps for their own health outcomes. I have some patients that actually they're very healthy, but their mom has Alzheimer's and they're like, how do I prevent that? So then we look at risk reduction strategies where people can help fill those gaps a little bit.
0: Perfect, perfect. Those are great suggestions. So everyone listening, remember number one, eliminate sugars and flours. There's absolutely no reason to have sugar and or flour in your meals. Doesn't matter if you're eating paleo or keto or whole 30 or vegan. There's no reason to have any of these. Move your body, just like Dr. Seaman very well said, and I completely agree with it. Go to the gym, go work out. Doesn't necessarily have to be in the gym, it can be at home, but make sure that you are exerting yourself. Don't just go there to get tired. Don't just go there to be on Facebook while you're on the treadmill. Make sure you sweat. It's better to do an intense 15 minute workout than to do an hour on the treadmill at just a very slow walk. And lastly, look at your family. See what's happening there. See what's kind of prevalent diseases, see if there's a lot of certain kinds of cancer, see if there's Alzheimer's, see if there's certain kinds of diabetes or any other chronic disorders, because you might be more predisposed to doing that. And it's not a death sentence. This is the most important thing. Knowing that your family has these different conditions is not a death sentence for you. It just means that you need to be on the lookout for these so that you can prevent them more intentionally and with purpose. So I think those are great suggestions. Dr. Seaman, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about you and how can they follow you online and social media?
2: Yep. They can find me on Facebook, Dr. Fit and Fabulous, on Instagram, Dr. Fit and Fab, and I do have a website, drfitandfabulous.com.
0: Perfect. Perfect. And you do provide online coaching on uh, nutritional coaching and things like that for people who are not in, in Omaha, right? That they cannot go to your practice.
2: Yes, they can find all the information on the website.
0: Perfect. I'll make sure to link all of these things in the show notes. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been episode 10 of the Highway Health show. If you want to get the show notes, remember you go to Dr. E. show. that's D-R-E. show forward slash zero one zero zero ten. 010. Thank you again, everyone, for being here. I look forward to seeing you in another episode. Have a great day.
1: Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health show, helping you learn the science of living ageless. Did you enjoy the show? Please like, share, and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. Dr. E wants to hear from you. Go to dre.show. Again, that's dre.show. Until next time, this is Dr. E's Highway to Health, helping you live ageless.